Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by Fidelity Digital Assets. Go to fidelitydigitalassets.com to download their quarterly signals report to learn more about Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. That's fidelitydigitalassets.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Uh, all right, so Bitcoin is 100% off the lows, but it's still 50% off the highs. I still can't believe it didn't go to like 5,000 with everything that happened. We, we were talking about it at the time, like Bitcoin should be trading at 5,000. I say this every cycle, it feels like, but the most impressive thing about Bitcoin is the fact that it just every won't die. cycle. Don't act like you've like you're like you like you were here in previous cycles. Well, we've been doing this. This since... is your so, son. This is your first cycle. Okay, you can't pull off sun, first of all. Second of all, <laughs> uh, no one can. We've been doing this since like 2017. How many cycles have there been in that time? Like That's eight? True. It feels like it. It just. But so, wait, wait, what I was going to ask you is, is it a bull market or are we still in a bear market? Oh, that's a good question. It doesn't feel like a bull market yet, does it? Not really. In fact, no, it, it does not. No, there, there's you not how, a lot of craziness going on or chest thumping. When's the last time somebody outside of finance asked you about Bitcoin? Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't, yeah. No, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe that's a sign of maturity, but. I still, we talk about this on the show today, I, I still view it as a call option to something. Is that, is, that the, is that still the best way to look at it? The story has certainly evolved and changed a million times over the years for what people thought it could be and it should be. And it's, it's the, the fact that like, people are not capitulating at the bottom to sell. And then also when it, when it moons, they're not like getting out of it. The, the, the main holders, that's one of the more impressive things about it. Yeah, in November, when it bottomed, I mean, just think about what happened in November. I mean, that was the fall of FTX. It's kind of wild. That, that, it's kind of wild that that was the bottom. Although, when you think about markets, I guess markets do bottom when things seem uh, blackest. But it is remarkable that it bottomed at what, like 15,000 as opposed to 5,000? Yes. The, the, the bottoms move up a little bit every time, but it just it won't die. Rasputin, right? Did you get that one? I, I don't know what Rasputin is. I, I know, I've heard of Rasputin. Is that a, what is that, a fable? I'll let you look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, today, we talked to Chris Kuyper from Fidelity Digital Assets, all about their work on it and, and how they, they try to put metrics on it, which is interesting. They look at it like short, midterm, long-term. It's interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I, this, this latest cycle, I think, is one of the more impressive about it. Again, just won't die. Just look up Rasputin, Michael. It's going to come to you. You're gonna, it's gonna, light bulb's going to go off. <laughs> I just did. I just did. All right. Here's our talk with Chris Kuyper, the director of research at Fidelity Digital Assets. We're joined today by Chris Kuyper. Chris is the director of research at Fidelity Digital Assets. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, last week, there was 300 some odd million dollars worth of inflows in, in crypto, this is a chart that comes from CoinShares, and it looks like the biggest flow in certainly of this year and probably even longer. What do we make of this? What's changed? I mean, uh, we know that like other asset classes, but maybe especially with crypto, it's driven by momentum. 
right? People are more likely to buy the breakout than to buy the dip. What do you think are, to the extent that there are fundamental reasons for, not not the chase, and we know why that exists, but for the price move. I mean, prices went from, I think it was like a $26,000 run to $34,000 fairly quickly. Maybe an ETF, uh, other news. What do you, what do you attribute this to? Yeah. So certainly if you look at year to date up hundred percent now, the first leg of that was all in the first quarter of the year, basically. So we had this huge surge up. Then we kind of traded sideways for a while, especially over the summer. And then this next leg has come on the back of a lot of this, this ETF news and speculation, right? So overall though, uh, it's been a little surprising to us on the research side because our research shows that Bitcoin in particular is most correlated to money, you know, especially broad money supply changes, uh, central bank balance sheet changes, uh, liquidity metrics. It's almost always reacting or anticipating these changes in money creation and liquidity, right? Uh, so we hadn't seen a lot of that. It's actually been tightening up. And so 2022 made a lot of sense with central banks tightening, Bitcoin going down, real rates going up, Bitcoin goes down. That makes sense to us, right? Because you've got higher real rates. Uh, as you know, investing is a relative game. So of course, these higher yields are looking a lot more attractive. So it's a little perplexing, especially these last few months, that Bitcoin is moving up even as real rates are also going up, right? So it's it's usually in the, they're usually correlated. So there's this huge decoupling that's happening. And the trillion dollar question is, well, does it recouple and, and correlate again? Meaning does Bitcoin have to drop? Or, and this is the camp I'm in, is Bitcoin sniffing something else out? Uh, maybe these structural deficits say that it's continuing to hold up and even go higher, especially when you've got some other catalysts on here. And I think you know, in favor of that camp is also gold. Gold's also been holding up and doing better, even as real rates go up. So that's why I think uh, that's maybe more of what's going on. But of course, we can only speculate on on the past price performance here. I was going to bring up gold actually because it's the same thing. There's always people have said there's this relationship between real rates and gold, right? And that makes sense because gold, just like Bitcoin, doesn't have a yield that it pays, right? And, and so you would assume, well, when rates are really low, that makes it more attractive when real rates go higher. And real rates have been sh shooting up really high this year, right, in a hurry. And, and kind of at the same time as Bitcoin and gold have been going up, right? It was like these real rates, especially in the long end, that happened really quickly in the last couple of months. And gold and Bitcoin have both rallied at that same time. So is that does this make you think that Bitcoin does share some of those characteristics or at least the investors in Bitcoin share some characteristics with people who invest in gold? Yeah, there's a huge overlap when you talk to people, people who are of a certain mindset on the macro side and, and tend to like gold for the reasons of monetary debasement, a hedge against monetary debasement. It's the same macro side on the Bitcoin side. If you're thinking of Bitcoin, which we usually do as a aspiring form of money, store of value, something that doesn't pay a cash flow or dividend, but with its cap supply and predictable schedule, uh, it has a clear value proposition, just like gold, but of course, even improves upon a lot of the characteristics of gold. It's more divisible. It's more audible. Uh, it's scarcer. It's got a higher stock to flow, that sort of thing. To that point, Druckenmiller and um, Paul Tudor Jones were at a conference last week talking about the idea of macro forces, uh, gold and Bitcoin. Did you, did you catch any of that? I, I saw a few headlines. haven't seen the whole thing yet. Yeah, it was, it was more or less what you're saying. But I think one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is, and you're right, we're speculating, it could who knows why it's doing what it's doing. Uh, earlier in the year, as it retraced a lot of the losses from the previous bear market, uh, a lot of people were saying that it was just a high beta trade. 
It was going up because the Nasdaq was going up. It was going up because risk assets were going up. Now we're in this interesting time where risk assets are not going up. And for reasons, again, uh, unknown, I guess probably the cleanest one is maybe it's just rallying in anticipation of an ETF, which is sort of a head scratcher to me because I think, at least I assumed that a bit, that an ETF was always coming. I mean, you would think it would be priced in, but maybe nothing and everything is, who, who the hell knows? Uh, but it is definitely a confounding move that we've seen over the past like two weeks or so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the... Um the ETF stuff, like we could argue either way, uh, what's what's comes first, right? If you can price it, if you can't, or how much, or how isn't. Obviously, with that leak that we got, what was it, two weeks ago now on a Monday? Cointelegraph? <laughs> yeah, where there was a, a, a erroneous report saying it was approved and it shot up about 10%. So clearly, some people don't think it's priced in. Um, but I think that the, the whole thing about the beta trade um, is interesting too, because you did clearly see that narrative. We saw correlation of of 0.8, I think, between Bitcoin and NASDAQ. So I like to say, you know, I can pound my hand on the table all day saying, Bitcoin is different. Here's why. Here's the value proposition. It's not a tech stock. But at the end of the day, if traders are going to trade it like a tech stock, that's how it's going to trade, right? And so I think you saw people treating it that way. And now it's going to be really interesting to see if they're coming around to some of these other core characteristics and maybe maybe seeing the other side of this, the other narrative. Miller called Bitcoin a brand. And I would go a step further and say that it's it's a religion to many people. And as evidence of this, uh, there was a tweet from Will Clemente, and the tweet is as such. According to Glassnode, there are now 600,000 plus more Bitcoin that haven't moved in 10 years than there are on exchanges. And there's a chart that we'll link to in the show notes. And the chart, again, just shows what I described. Bitcoin supply that was last active over 10 years ago with the amount of Bitcoin on exchanges. That is that is that is some serious conviction. I would I would definitely say that uh stock investors, for example, don't share that conviction. Maybe you know Tesla shareholders do, but just by and large, that is that sort of fervor dedication is is makes it interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that stat, but that's actually encapsulating two data points that we've seen. So you've got two of them working for you. The first one is the number of illiquid coins. So we look at, say, coins that haven't moved in over a year. That's hit 70% of the total supply. That's the highest it's ever been. And then coins on uh, exchanges, since we know these exchange wallets and stuff like that, you can see the number of coins on exchanges. That is down 30% from its peak just for the number of Bitcoin, right? So you've got both of those things working in that stat that you just said. And I agree. People people eventually come around to, this is a core allocation. Uh, maybe it's very small, but it's very asymmetric. And I'm just going to hold it and put it away. Like I have conviction that this is either going to work or it's it's not. And that's my personal opinion. I, I fail to see in the longer term how this is not very binary, right? It's either going to work or it's not. I, I don't see how it can kind of just sit in the middle at a at trillion dollars or less. But you know, that's me personally. You think of it as like a call option in a lot of ways, because that's kind of how I always looked at it as well. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's a a long dated call option. You don't you don't have uh, the decay like you do. You just have to hold it. And, you know, whether you hold it with a custodian, pay a little bit or self custody it yourself. um, So you don't have to pay that. And then, yeah, it's if if it's a small enough part of your portfolio, it's not going to eat, eat into it meaningfully. But there could be a huge asymmetric return there. Do you think some part of the reason why there's been no decrease in volatility, even as prices have gone 
significantly higher. I'm talking about from like 500 to 10, you know, to a thousand to, to even at 64,000 or wherever it is. And, you know, at 34,000 here today, there's been very little in the way of decreased volatility. Is that because the, there's such a permanent portion of Bitcoin that just never trades. And so it's just sort of like a low float type of, type of security. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the time frame you're looking at, and it's all relative. We we have seen a decline in volatility, but it's gone from like an 80 vol asset down to a 50, and that was even before this recent move. So maybe it's it's gone back up. Um, but yeah, it's it's there's only a few million on exchanges. We can see that stat, like you said, with you know haven't moved in 10 years. There's tons of coins that are lost, and then there's tons that are just put away for probably decades in people's minds, right? And so you you don't need a lot of flow to move that marginal price. So you you have a piece that you recently wrote uh, about why investors need to consider Bitcoin separately from other digital assets. Is that the brand thing that Michael was talking about? Is it like is Bitcoin being looked at by you as millennial gold? Like what's the what's the thinking behind this? Yeah, that gets at it for sure. Uh, it's called Bitcoin First. Why investors need to consider Bitcoin uh, if in front of other digital assets or something like that in the subtitle. I don't quite remember, but. It's kind of twofold. Number one, Bitcoin was first in that it was the first to do this technologically. So you do have that first mover brand type thing. But it was also the first to do that zero to one, the the Peter Thiel zero to one kind of thing. It was the first to invent the wheel. It was the first to create a truly scarce digital money. And as we know with, with the blockchain trilemma, when you design these things, you can either optimize for uh, two of three things, right? Decentralization, security, or speed. And Bitcoin opted to go for decentralization security. And that makes sense if you think of this in, as an emerging money, an aspiring store of value, that's what you want, right? And so it was first, it, it, it took a hold that market. Anything that comes after it is going to make a trade-off with those things, right? So it might improve one thing, but it's gonna make a trade-off with something else. And so we think if you think of Bitcoin as a money, and the network good there, that's a whole different bucket than all of this other stuff that's come after it. And so as an investor, um, you have to take the same framework. You need to look at Bitcoin as an aspiring money and then everything else through more of a technological VC capital-like uh, investing framework. At Fidelity Digital Assets, where you mentioned, or I mentioned, we're talking about the number of Bitcoin that are held on exchanges. I guess those are going where? To uh, cold wallets? Well, we don't know. We just know they're coming off of the exchange wallets and all these different firms like Glassnode and other ones that we use, they can identify the exchange wallets. Um, So they could be going to a custodian like Fidelity Digital Assets. We wouldn't be classified as an exchange. Or they could be going to a personal cold wallet, someone who's just holding the keys themselves. But yes, more than likely, they're they're going to some kind of long-term cold storage, at least at least as far as we can see from the data. Um, and again, this also is supported by the number of coins moving around as well. You mentioned Fidelity Digital Assets as a, as a custodian for, is it Bitcoin and, and ETH as well or just Bitcoin? Correct. We offer custody services for Bitcoin and Ether. So what, um, what, could, what exchange do you all use to purchase and sell? So we have, we have an execution platform and we have a number of different venues and, and ways we try to find liquidity. Um, but users of the platform can can do it right directly on our own platform. So I'm curious, so you said like the, the 70% that basically doesn't seem to change hands. How much turnover is there going 
on the other 30%, is it similar to the stock market? Like, have you done work on that? Like, how much is the other stuff changing hand? Because I got, I got to imagine that stuff is, is moving around quite a bit. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So first of all, the 70% is a new high. So that that's not normally. Uh, it's been as low as 30%. I think maybe averages around 50. Don't quote me on that. Wait, can you remind us what, what, what does that number represent? I forget. I'm sorry. Yeah, so the percentage of coins that haven't moved in over a year. So if you call those illiquid, then the other 30% are the liquid ones, right? Which is setting the price. Right, exactly. The marginal price. Yeah. But there was there was basically like n complete apathy. I saw a tweet like, I don't know, maybe two months ago that the volume on Coinbase was, I don't know if this is the lowest ever, but it was the lowest in a long time. There was essentially not no activity, but anemic volume to say the least. Yeah. Trading volumes, um, not just Coinbase, but like all in um, US or USD supported trading volumes, I think from their peak are down about 90% still. Maybe wow. it's picked up a little bit. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's certainly apathy in the trading speculative world, but because we have these on-chain metrics and we put out this thing called the signals report, uh, we, we bucket these different on-chain metrics. So trading activity is one way to look at it. But if you look at what I call long-term fundamentals. Basically, you're wondering if people are becoming apathetic about the, the network itself, meaning are they leaving the network? Are, is activity slowing down on the actual on-chain network? That's actually gone up. You know, New addresses are up, active addresses are up, hash rate is up. So I like to say if, if I was in a coma and I had no idea what Bitcoin's price had done for the last five years, and you showed me these fundamentals, everything that has to do with everything but price, I would be surprised we're still in this bear market down 50, 60% because the activity keeps going up. And for me, as you know, if, if you're a long-term investor, that's what you care about. You only care that people aren't becoming apathetic about the network itself. So getting back to your piece about Bitcoin treating them different from digital, digital assets, are you ready to like pour dirt on most of these other coins? Because we heard about in the run-up in like 2020 and 2021 is like, okay, these other cryptocurrencies, they kind of take a little bit what Bitcoin did, and there's a trade-off, but they, they're going to do it better. They're going to do something faster. They're going to change the network somehow, whatever. Are, are most of those, should they all be worthless? Like, where, where are your thoughts on these other coins? Yeah, that's certainly not at all what the report says or tries to say. It just says you need a different lens. And so because Bitcoin has solidified itself in our minds as the emerging monetary good, and it emphasizes decentralization security, Everything that comes after it, that tweaks it, tries to improve on it, it might be better at something. You know, there's networks that are faster. There's networks that are programmable. They can do more stuff, but they've made a trade-off somewhere else. And so you just need to be intellectually honest about that and saying, I'm okay with that. There's a different use case for this. But because of that, there's also going to be more competition, right? And we've seen this with Ethereum and others. Um, there's a lot more competition. They're, they're trying to match their use case to what the mar what the network can do, right? And they're trying to find that product market fit. And that's the challenge for them. And that's what you as investors need to do. And, and you can even just look at, you know, the top five, 10 market cap from three, four, five years ago compared to the top five, 10 market cap today. Almost every single one is different except for Bitcoin, Ether, and maybe one other one out there. And that just shows you the level of turnover and competition that these face. Well, Bitcoin market cap dominance is, I'm looking now, I'm seeing it's 53%. Yeah. Which is definitely the highest it's been since uh, March of, I'm sorry, April of 2021. So during, during the run-up, it's not like Bitcoin is taking market share. 
It, it depends. So, you know, Bitcoin was 100% and now it's down to 50, but it's way bigger on an absolute basis. So it's not that Bitcoin's market cap has shrunk and gotten competed away. It's just that the whole space has gotten bigger overall over the long term. Now, in the shorter term timeframes, yes, there might be some big booms, the ICO boom, the NFT craze booms, like some of these booms where, yeah, Bitcoin does suffer a little bit. But if you zoom out and take the long term picture, uh, dominance is still well over half. And it's only gone down because the pie has gotten bigger, so to speak. So for, for Bitcoin, to me, like I view it as an emerging or uh, what's the term that you use? An aspiring store of value. That to me is how I think about Bitcoin. I, I I am not in the camp that it's ever going to be this payment platform that people are buying and sending and spending. Like I view it as an asset as an as an investable asset class. Uh, Ethereum, on the other hand, to me that should have more observable fundamentals. Like, are people using this technology to create? whatever whatever the next thing is, or are they not? What is the state of the building block, the the Lego set uh, that Ethereum has been uh, described as? Yeah, I, I think that's about right. Um, there's It's built with more of a use case in mind, so to speak, in terms of applications being built on top of it, obviously. And so you want to see that user activity, and ultimately you want to see fees being generated on it, right? So we can look at that. Um, you know, in terms of the fundamentals, we include this in our latest signals report as well. We do a whole set on Bitcoin. We do a whole set on Ether. And fundamentals for Ethereum network are down a bit. Uh, addresses and activity are down. Uh, fees are down. Part of that's the market. I think there is just, you know, people are still building on it, but there's just not as much of, of a craze and experimentation around that. So I think we have to be honest about that. But it gets a little nuanced in that there's also these L2s being built on it. So they're taking that activity and it's going on on top of it on the L2. So it's cheaper up there. Uh, but then there's less activity and fees showing up on the base layer. And so there's this debate right now of, well, is it going to cannibalize it? Is this bad for it? Or is it good for it? Because if you have better speed and lower fees, that brings more people on. So ultimately that could be good uh, for the base layer as well of, of Ethereum. So we're watching that closely, seeing how that plays out as well. Can you explain what what is a layer two? So layer two is, is something that it, um, sits on top of Ethereum, like builds on top of it. So you can do a bunch of transactions, batch them all together, and then send the whole batch to the base layer. And so that's how you try to solve for the scalability and high fee problem, if that makes sense. So what else in your signals report? Because we said Bitcoin doesn't, it's not like a producing cash flows or paying yield or anything. So what are you, what are you looking for in terms of trying to figure out different metrics to pay attention to when you put these reports out? Yeah, so... One of the things we looked at at the research marketplace was uh, there's a lot of on-chain metrics out there, a lot of smart people doing it, but give me you know, a subscription to one of these platforms and I can paint any picture you want with these, kind of like the regular equity markets, as you know, that's, that's my traditional background as well. So uh, we wanted to be consistent in showing the same metrics every quarter. And then we also wanted to guide people because a, a lot of especially traditional allocators they know they're out there, but they don't know how to use them or what they are. And so the first thing we did was we bucketed them by time frame. So if you're a, a short-term investor, say less than a year, here's a few things you can look at. If you're a medium-term investor, meaning maybe you've got a big lump sum. I mean, and you, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, a short-term I'm sure is like just trend, right? It's just moving averages. It's 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 basic price stuff. There's not actually a lot of on-chain stuff in the short term. I mean, there there is, but we don't deal with that. Medium-term, 
say you're an investor that's got a lump sum to either invest or take out, you don't want to hit the absolute top or bottom. And we've seen these four-year cycles, right? Here's the things you can look at to try to gauge that. And then long-term is what I mentioned before. You're long-term investor. You don't really care about price over the next five years. You, you just want to make sure your core thesis is intact, which is the network still running and being adopted. So I saw a tweet. I think it was from it was from somebody at Bitwise. I don't remember if it was Matt or somebody else, uh, Matt Hogan or somebody else. Uh, that five percent is the new one percent in terms of portfolio construction. They said that they've been having a lot of conversations with advisors that are that are thinking about crypto in a more serious way. What are you seeing from the advisors or the investors that you're talking to in terms of how they're thinking about crypto in the context of portfolio construction? Hmm, that, that's interesting. The 5% is a new 1%. I, I hadn't seen that. I'll have to look it up. But um, I mean, on our end, we're still early. So it's still trying to get people off zero. Uh, maybe part of that f- five versus one is is the fact that maybe allocators are looking at and saying like, eh, 1% isn't going to do much for me. I, I think the challenge is still getting people people off zero, <laughs> but hopefully maybe they'll they'll be incentivized to look a bit, a bit deeper into it as well. We mentioned earlier about like the the widening fiscal deficit, obviously the inflation story. Do you think that it's just, hold that to the side and it's really just, you know, it just is what it is that people will be interested at 50,000, at 60,000 as more and more people chase price? Like, isn't it more likely that price will convince people to get in rather than like the story that determine that, that uh, defines what Bitcoin is? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a little chicken or egg. And you see this in in regular equity markets. So to draw a parallel, think of a value investor. Value investor knows the, the core story and, and thesis of the stock, right? And they're going to invest when, when the chips are down and nobody believes in it and they see something someone else does. But eventually a few other people notice and maybe a few other people notice and maybe there's a catalyst or something. And then eventually probably what is carrying that price more is just people momentum piling in, right? So I would expect the same dynamics here. We're still in a bear market. We're still trying to say, here's the core value proposition, the story, the narrative. But eventually, the best advertising is price. <laughs> and so I fully expect that, as you say, when we get there, that's what's going to pull people in too. But hopefully, they get pulled in and they start actually learning about it. I mean, we're huge advocates here of education, of understanding what you own and why you own it, not just for the price. And so maybe if the price piques their interest, maybe they do more research from us and from others that do a lot of great work and and then learn that core thesis and narrative. If the Bitcoin ETF comes out and it's a resounding success and billions and billions of dollars flow into it, is is there any impact on Bitcoin itself in terms of making the, the network more robust because there's increased demand? Is there any flow through there because it's just kind of a secondary holder of this asset? Does it actually improve anything with Bitcoin by having more money in the in an ETF when it happens? Yeah, actually, in our Bitcoin First report, we have this little wheel graphic that we call the virtuous cycle. And I don't think we were the first to, to do, do this or propose it, but it's it's simple but powerful, which is if demand goes up, price goes up. And if price goes up, it's more profitable for miners to mine Bitcoin. So they plug more machines into the network. That increases the hash rate or a measure of the computing power on the network, which means security goes up. Once security goes up, people say, this network is even more secure, it's more attractive, that core value proposition is even more attractive to me. 
uh, and then increases demand again. Now, of course, it doesn't just happen nicely like that. There's ebbs and flows and swings, but that is the core adoption cycle of why we continue to see hash rate go up with price, right? That the two are, are, are linked. Chris, do advisors that want to allocate to Bitcoin or Ether on their, on their, on their client's behalf, do they need to be working with Fidelity, the traditional Fidelity, uh, with, with Fidelity, <laughs> I'm trying to put, with Fidelity, not digital assets, with Fidelity, Fidelity. The Royal, the royal be, We. The Royal Fidelity. Do they need <laughs> to be a client of Fidelity in order to work with Fidelity Digital? Yeah, so we have a number of, of products and avenues. Uh, our first core product was uh, Fidelity Digital Assets. We're a, a subsidiary of Fidelity, the big Fidelity, right? Um, so a separate entity dedicated to this space. That's where we have institutional investors, high net worth individuals uh, on board to our platform. They can buy and sell through our platform and then custody with us. Uh, so RIAs could do that. RIAs firms could do that on behalf of their clients. We've also launched uh, the integration with our Wellscape platform. So RIAs who are already on that can just plug directly into, into that. And then we're the backend custody and service of that. So that's you know a very streamlined uh, way for them to, to plug into this. Chris, where do we send people to learn more? FidelityDigitalAssets.com. And you can click on the research tab, sign up, get on our mailing list for all of our latest research as well. Perfect. Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, thank you to Chris. Again, remember, check out FidelityDigitalAssets.com. Send us an email, animalspirits at the compoundnews.com. And we'll see you next time.